Hi everyone! Today I have my good friend Arsen Asipov here. He's actually one of my best friend's husband and someone I truly admire. He's a 36-year-old Armenian doctor who works at Cedar sinai in cancer research and he has accomplished so much in such a short amount of time. Um, I think that he is somebody that we need to really get to know, get to know who he is, where he came from, and where he's headed with this career. There's so much to be said, so I don't want to waste time. Uh, I do have to mention that he's won endless awards, published research papers. He's received large grants from uh, from the U.S. for cancer research. He's just... He just showed me his CV and it was like endless accomplishments. And I'm talking about 10 pages of things. So I won't go into the details because I don't even know the details, to be honest with you. It's a lot of technical and medical stuff. So Arsen, thank you for doing this. I know how busy you are and you are one of the first people that I wanted to interview because I truly admire you. Uh, you know, sometimes we go out and, you know, I'll talk about my stressful day of, you know, not getting my orders on time or whatever it is with the product. And then you hear his stressful day and you're like, wow, um, I don't know how you do it. And it makes, you know, our work problems seem a lot smaller. So uh, tell us, Ar- Ar- Arsene, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, first, thanks, Lydia, for having me on this podcast. Um, uh, just to, to go back, you know, uh, I'm actually a, a medical oncologist at Cedar sinai and uh, I also have an academic position there where I'm an assistant professor um, at Cedars as well as two other institutions at Johns Hopkins and at UCLA. And um, I spend most of my time doing research for cancer patients, as well as I have a a clinic where I take care of patients with really advanced cancers, particularly pancreatic cancer. Right. So from what I've learned about what you've been doing with that clinic, so you basically created this multidisciplinary clinic, uh, one of its kind in um, the West Coast, or was it the East Coast? Did you create it over there? No, it started, it actually started on the East Coast, but we we created the first one of its kind here on the West Coast when I moved from Johns Hopkins to Cedars-Sinai. And in this clinic, what you've created this program, from what I understand is, you know, once someone finds out they have pancreatic cancer, which is the fastest moving cancer, Mm -hmm. from what I know, it takes about six weeks before they get a plan of what they need to do to combat this. Right. And you've created this program where they have this information in four hours. Can you tell us a little bit more? Yeah, so the, we, did, we actually designed this clinic with the worst cancer, which is unfortunately pancreatic cancer. And the idea behind this is that when you're diagnosed with any cancer, by the time you have a suspicion and then you end up getting, finding out that it is a cancer and coming up with a treatment plan, that on average takes somewhere between four to six weeks. And when people hear the word cancer, they go, oh my God, this is, this is horrible. And they're confused. They don't know what to do. And just the waiting of, of finding answers is extremely burdensome to people. So we designed a very unique clinic where patients specifically with pancreatic cancer come in. And on a single day in a single place, they see all the experts. Now, why is this important? Because normally in the community, if you have a particular cancer, you see a surgeon and you see a medical oncologist, you see a radiation oncologist, then you go from one visit to the other to the other. And this can take, again, on the order of weeks. But here, when we design this clinic, all the experts converge in one place, one location at any given time. And there, what normally would take six weeks gets done in a few hours. We evaluate the patients together. All the doctors sit in one single room. The case is reviewed very thoroughly. And then we come up with a treatment plan. And then each doctor in about 10 to 20 minute increments meets the patient. We go over our recommendations from their aspect of care. And then not only that, you know, when you get diagnosed with cancer, it's just not about meeting your doctors. There's a big psychological burden. There's people that have issues with weight loss and diet and, you know, like real life problems where they also want answers. So on that same day, they meet a social worker, they meet a a social worker that has a psychology background to talk about the burden of the disease. They meet a dietitian to talk about how to maintain their weight. And the other thing that comes up is patients say, hey, you know, I have a cancer. Does it mean that my family or my kids, they're going to get this too? Which is a very common question. So they actually meet a geneticist that day. And we take a blood sample where we can figure out the cancer that you have, did you inherit this or was this just bad luck? Mm-hmm. And they get all of these answers within just a few hours. So a patient walks away from this clinic 
and they feel empowered that, you know what, I know what's going on and this is my treatment plan and I can either take this plan, go close to home, or I can get treated at Cedars and they have this option. So a clinic like this really doesn't exist on the West Coast. And even though we started in pancreatic cancer, the goal is as an institution that we expand this to every kind of cancer, lung cancer, ovarian cancer, breast cancer. This is the flagship model where one day, you know, we'll apply it to other tumors. This is amazing, but also insane. How has this not been done before? I mean, what made you think like, why aren't we, why aren't we consolidating? Like what made you start thinking about this clinic and how to uh, accomplish this thing that has never happened before? Yeah, so I w I'm, I've been very privileged. You know, before I started my faculty position at Cedars, I was um, a fellow at Johns Hopkins University on the East Coast. And Johns Hopkins is a very special institution. It is the, the mecca of medicine. You know, that's where medical education, medical research was really founded well over 100 years ago. And there, this, this concept was actually really developed, and I was a part of the team that kind of made this clinic happen there. And we realized that it's a big burden to medical institutions and to doctors to be able to have such a clinic. It's not easy. And you really need true experts in that field. And because of the challenges that existed, most institutions, they just want to, you know, treat patients and move on. But here I had a personal vested interest that, you know, you want to take care of patients in the best way possible, that patients aren't just numbers, you know, they're not just uh, insurance billing, patients are individuals and you have to really create care around the patient um, instead of have the patient apply to the system. So I saw, I saw the model there, I helped develop it there and then I took it and I said, you know, we don't have anything here on the West Coast, neither in Southern California or in California for that matter. And we realized that we see a large volume of pancreas cancer patients, that's, that's the thing. And also, I'm personally very, very interested in pancreatic cancer research in general. When I started medicine, you know, I, I remember I was like, all right, I, I know I'm really passionate about medicine in general, but what really makes me get up every day and say, hey, I want to do this. And I realized that one of the biggest challenges is cancer. And within cancer, the biggest challenge is pancreatic cancer. You know, we've made huge strides in treating other kinds of cancer, but patients, when you have pancreas cancer, um, unfortunately, it's uh, very aggressive. And whereas with most cancers, the survival is improving, with pancreas cancer, it's really not. It's, it's marginal increments of improvement. And one thing most people don't realize is that in about eight years from now, it's expected that pancreas cancer will be the second leading cause of cancer death in this country. So wow. it's past colon cancer, breast wow. cancer, ovarian cancer. And it's not that common, but it's a, it is extremely deadly. And when I saw this, I said, we really need to invest everything we have medically from a research standpoint and honestly from a patient care standpoint to take care of these patients. Um, You're changing the future. I mean, that's... Single-handedly. Uh, I know you have an entire team, but I mean, someone has to be invested in that, like you said. And I remember we went out to dinner. I was like, why pancreatic cancer? You're like, it's the one cancer that is untreatable at the... Untreatable, is that the right word? Because I mean... I know there's treatments to prolong it, but yeah, no, your it's the hardest cancer. It is, to it beat. is because yeah. even, even you know, even if you look at patients that get surgery to remove the cancer, you, you're, when you say the word untreatable, it's it's it's, it's somewhat accurate because eighty percent of the patients that get surgery, the tumor comes back, mm. and we're really we're treating for palliation to comfort these patients and to prolong their life as as long as we can, and. It, it is a big challenge, but it's one that's necessary, absolutely necessary, because if we can perfect such a model for patient care in this tumor, then I'm confident you can apply this to other tumors and, in fact, to medical care in general, where you have a team of experts coming in, helping patients in an efficient manner. So that's, that's really the goal of the clinic. Amazing. And based on your research... Um, the assumption is it's going to be the number two killer in America or the world. Yeah. Um, it, based on your research, have you realized that it's more genetic or bad luck, like you said? So, it, so we know that pancreatic cancers, um, majority of it is it's environmental factors, and unfortunately, it, it is bad luck. Mm -hmm. There's about ten to fifteen percent of patients with this tumor that it happens genetically in the sense that they got a a gene from mom or dad that they inherited that raised their risk of getting this cancer. 
um, and we check for that. And it's important because not only is it important because if you have children, you can screen them earlier for this cancer as well as others they might be predisposed to. And the other part that's interesting is even though, yeah, raise, if you have these genes, it raises your risk. Actually, it also opens up very unique treatment options that didn't exist 10 15 years ago that really can change Mm -hmm. the outcome for patients. Mm -hmm. Speaking of outcome, I know you recently told us that you may have found a treatment that you've been testing on mice that actually heals them. Do we talk about this? Yeah. yeah, (laughs) Can you talk about this? I mean, this is, it's mind blowing. I can't even, you know, this has never happened. Pancreatic cancer in particular, correct? Yeah, I mean, we pancreatic cancer, as I mentioned, it's, it's really aggressive. And, you know, we, a lot of research, what most people don't realize before actually doing or testing drugs in patients, we conduct tests in animals. And one of the most common ones is actually mice. And I tell friends and family, they're like, oh, what do you do at work? I said, well, you know, to put it simply, we, uh, we do tests on animals and mm-hmm. little mice. They're like, you play with mice? I was like, not quite, <laughs> not quite, but uh, it's something like that, where what we do is actually, we, we inject these tumors into mice and to try to simulate what it would be like in a, in a human patient. Mm-hmm. And we test novel drugs that we do a lot of research in, in my lab on. And what we did is we took mice that were very similar to to human pancreatic cancers and we caused the cancer to grow in the liver so they had essentially what is stage four pancreas cancer and these mice we gave a very unique cocktail of drugs there were actually three drugs one of which actually this drug in 2018 uh, two scientists won the nobel prize for discovering this drug about 15 20 years ago but it took 20 years from their discovery to realize that this drug actually can make a big difference. And in fact, these class of drugs, which are known as immune therapy, they're very different than chemo. You know, patients hear about chemo, they're like, oh, this thing's horrible, it sucks. Mm-hmm. You get chemo, you feel horrible. Yeah, it works, but I'm always nauseous. I don't feel well. It's hard. Because chemo, to put it simply, is a poison. It's a poison for cancer. But it's, um, it's, a, it's a poison to the human body. But these new class of drugs that were discovered, which are immune therapy, the idea is different. It goes in and it turns your immune system on to attack and kill cancer. Very unique. And literally, they won the Nobel Prize for this. And this class of drugs in lung cancer and melanoma, patients with stage 4 uh, disease of these tumors, 10 years ago, you know, they maybe had a year, two years to mm-hmm. live. Nowadays, we carefully use the word cure. When they get this drug, they're actually cured of their disease. Mm-hmm. And it works in certain tumors that have these, what are called biomarkers. So it, it really, you know, it, it changed the way we treat cancer, period. The problem is that in certain cancers like pancreas, it just doesn't work. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I get all these patients that come in and they say, hey, I heard about this new, new drug called immune therapy and my cousin or my so-and-so got cured. Please doctor, do this for me. And the, the answer we give is, yeah, it works in those tumors, but it doesn't work in pancreas cancer. So, mm-hmm. you know, years ago, I asked the question, so why can't we take this unbelievable drug that's changed the way we treat cancer? And why can't we make it work in pancreas cancer? So I essentially dedicated my entire research to figuring out how do you make this new immune therapy work in this most aggressive tumor? And what we found out is actually... There's these other unique drugs that you can combine that make immune therapy work. So we tested it. We put these big tumors in mice. The mice developed stage four cancer. We treated them for a few weeks. And then about 90 days later, in the mice that got the special drugs, we couldn't detect the cancer. Wow. So the mice were cured. Wow. And um, we just published this in a very, very prestigious journal and it sets the stage to say, okay, what do you take this? You know, yeah, you can cure it in mice, but what about human patients? Yeah. So the, the, the plan is that through the U.S. government and through um, large pharmaceutical companies, we're going to develop a unique clinical trial in the coming few years where we're going to take these drugs and we're going to test it. And for patient. side effects and every exactly so first we'll you, you, i mean any side effect is any better side, than yeah. the ultimate right one, right but. right we tested for first for side effects and safety but ultimately the goal is going to be to test it against chemo and say hey now we can improve the outcomes in this patients mm-hmm. so the goal would be to 
in a few years time from now to put our first patients with these new drugs with the hope that, you know, if you can cure it in mice, that we can cure it in human patients. Mm -hmm. That doesn't happen often. In fact, it happens less than maybe 1% of the time. But if there's a chance, you know, we want to do it. So that's, that's the plan for the next few years. And I know people who are listening are probably thinking, okay, you know, God forbid somebody I know or I have to deal with this, um, this, this treatment. Is there like, do you, how do you guys pick? You, you just pick and choose from the people who currently have the disease or in the future, is it going to be something that um, anybody can afford really? Yes. Or is it something that you'd have to be able to afford? No, so that's that's a really good question. The the, the concept of money and burden. Because I patients. know that this is very common misconception that you know if you don't have money, not a misconception. I'm sorry that you know if you don't have insurance and all of these things that you're not you don't have access to a lot of these high end things. No, your your point's really really important. So a lot of patients when they hear about these new drugs or clinical trials say, oh, you know, I don't. I don't have uh, good insurance coverage, or I don't. I can't financially maybe do this. The reality is, this type of research that we do, it actually funds itself. Mm-hmm. So patients, as long as they get to meet us, we find ways to get patients on clinical trials where they have no financial burden. Mm-hmm. Um, because again, we, this is why we apply for big grants from the United States NIH to support this research. And the idea, you know, the the government has a vested interest in trying to improve outcomes for cancer patients nationally. So there's a big support mechanism. So patients and people shouldn't shy away from saying, oh, you know, maybe I can't afford this. They should really investigate, find good doctors and experts that maybe can put them in these unique clinical trials. And the other thing that you brought up that's important, you know, how do you figure out which patients to to select? Mm -hmm. This has been a, a big challenge. You know, it's always like, which medication works best for any patient? And, uh, 20 years ago, we really didn't know. We, 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 we could speculate. Nowadays, we're, our labs are also working on finding these markers or biomarkers in the blood where we'll take a sample of your blood and we can figure out of the five treatments, let's say, that are available for this particular cancer, which one is going to work best for you. Mm. That didn't exist before. So we use very advanced testing of your genes and your immune system to figure out What's the best path for you? And this is a tool that we're refining kind of over time. So there's a lot for patients to, to be able to find the appropriate treatment and have access to it. That's amazing. You should be so proud of yourself. I hear, I, I tell your wife all the time. And is it like, this? is this for you? You wake up, you know, it's, it's a job. You just go, you, you get shit done and you handle it and you come home. Do you get emotionally attached Oh, that's a hard question. That's a, the, the emotional um, attachment to patients is a, it's a very fine line because, and I'll be honest, there are times where I'm with patients that if I actually let go, I'll, I'll probably sob with them in the room. But you have to sometimes kind of hold it together because that patient is looking to you as that stable rock in which they can hold on to in this kind of sea of madness that they're in, this unknown. So you have to still express compassion and empathy, but you can't let go completely. That being said, you know, over time, especially with cancer patients, you develop these relationships where you become a part of their family and they become a part of yours, whether you want it or you don't. And especially physicians who are really invested in their um, patients. And I've realized that there are patients and there are times where I get so emotionally attached to patients and it, it, that it, as much as I try to maybe not carry it home, it still comes home with me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've had, unfortunately, many patients pass. There are patients I've attended their funerals mm-hmm. because I've had such a attachment to them as, as people. And, you know, the other thing is, you sit in clinic, you see a patient for 30 minutes or an hour, you only know them in that point of their sickness. But when you get to know patients about their lives, their families, their children, that's a whole other dynamic. There have been cases where I've had patients who I've, for various reasons, developed a closer relationship to where maybe we would spend 30 minutes talking about their cancer care. But for whatever reason, I would spend another 20 minutes at the end of clinic, we would just sit down and 
talk about life or how he's doing. And when this particular patient I'm thinking of um, passed, I ended up going to his funeral and I, I met his family and they had a collage, I'll never forget it, of his whole life. And he, when I treated him, I knew he was amazing for many reasons. But then when I saw his life, it's like, this guy was unbelievable, you know, and all the things he did, the friendships he had, the places he traveled, the mark he left bef before he passed, that, that, there's a burden that you carry with that. Mm -hmm. And um, it, it, sometimes that's hard. And, and sometimes I realize there are patients that I'm, I'm ripping my mind apart trying to figure out what could I do to, to give this patient another few more weeks. Or oftentimes, you know, they define their, their path about events. Like, Doc, can you get me to my daughter's wedding? Mm -hmm. Doc, can you get me to this event that I have with my family? It's important to me. Mm -hmm. And when I realize that I just can't, or no matter what I do or our team does, we can't, that is a burden that... One, it's, it's, it's heavy, but I think a part of it motivates me to do everything that I do on a day-to-day -day mm -hmm. basis. So when you said you wake up, I think I wake up because I know that during that day, I'm going to do something that we're going to move a little bit closer. Maybe, I, and again, I'm, I don't have a guarantee that we're going to hit that goal of cure. Mm -hmm. But at least I know that every single day, that needle will move a little more forward towards that goal of getting a cure and really making an impact on these patients. And at the end of the day, really, it's about that relationship you develop with the patient. That it's, it's worth its weight in, in anything, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and when patients trust you with their life and they, they trust you with their care, that, that is something that is extremely humbling to me. Um, that's why when, you know, you, you say such nice things about me, I'm very humbled because um, I, I do this not for for prestige, because the greatest privilege actually is the, the trust that a patient gives you. Mm -hmm. And for me, that's really all that matters. So it makes you a good doctor. I, I'd like to think so. I hope so. And I hope that that never changes in me. And I hope it never changes in other young physicians. Mm -hmm. Do you notice a difference in patients who are you know, positive, positively reinforced uh, emotionally, and then patients who give up the second you tell them. Do you see a difference in their lifespan? That that, that is such a awesome question you asked. And what I'm going to tell you, I don't. Again, I'm very objective and scientific, but I'll tell you one thing. Mm -hmm. Anecdotally, the, in my experience, the patients that even with this horrible news that they've been diagnosed with cancer, the ones that are positive and ready to kind of move forward, start treatment, and you know, achieve that best possible outcome, they do better when they're positive. Mm -hmm. But the patients that kind of, I don't want to say the word give up, but maybe if they're overwhelmed or they just kind of have a more somewhat pessimistic look, it's harder for whatever reason. The anecdotally, I don't know what happens, but patients do better when they have positive reinforcement, when then they themselves feel, you know what, yeah, this is a very tough challenge, but I'm going to overcome it. Mm -hmm. They tend to do better. They tend to tolerate treatments better. Mm -hmm. They tend to overall have a better course regardless of the outcome. So I think in this, in this disease, and probably in, actually in any disease, is your mental state is really, really, really important. And as doctors, we shouldn't just be focusing on giving the best possible treatment, but mentally connecting and mentally providing the treatment that that patient needs. You know, if it's a simple thing as such as, putting your hand on their knee, talking to them about their day-to-day -day life, talking to them about their family, addressing a social concern. That actually gives patients the willingness to, to you know, keep at this battle. Mm -hmm. So that, you, that part's important. You mentioned that you guys also do therapy and, you know, mental health. So Absolutely. Absolutely. That's great. Um, let's take it back a little bit because I know that... Um, You've had several, not several, more than several positions that you've, you've grown into again and again throughout the years. You moved from L.A., moved to Maryland and uh, took your family and your wife left her demanding law career to do that. How was that? How was that for you? I know it was hard for your wife because she's my friend and we've yeah. had conversations being alone, leaving your career, starting a new career, new baby. I mean, uh, of course, it's all worth it. And your wife uh, supports you and stands by you and all of that. But 
um, what made you decide on Hopkins and moving your family there? Yeah, no, that's... that's how did you not stay there? <laughs> I know, I know. So there's, there's a lot of good stories behind how this whole thing unfolded. But, you know, I, I, I've traveled quite a bit because, you know, I did medical school actually in, in Virginia. Then I came to Cedars where I did my residency and my chief year. And then at that time, you know, uh, when I was here in LA and you know, all of our families here, my wife's friends are here, Lilith, you're here. Yeah. So it's, it's important to her to, to, to be close to her friends and family. And sorry to interrupt, yeah. the reason I say this is being Armenian. Oh yeah. You know, I, it does play a big role on, um, you know, we do, we're not all over the place. We're all together, all oh, yeah. family, fr- oh, like yeah. everyone's together. It's hard to pack up and leave. And this is oh, why I yeah. that. You said it perfectly. It's yeah. hard to pack up and leave. So knowing all of this and, and how close she is to her friends and family, when I was uh, finishing my chief year here at Cedars, I remember, you know, I've, I've been very fortunate. I've had great mentors and they told me, they said, hey, listen, honestly, after your residency, you can do fellowship wherever you want. You're in that good of a position. And the advice was try to strive for the best. And, you know, I could have stayed here, you know, been at UCLA or at Cedars or any one of the great institutions here. But at the time, I knew that at least as it pertained to cancer research and uh, pancreatic cancer, the, as I mentioned before, the place to be is, is Johns Hopkins, which, which is, was for many years was the number one hospital in the country, if not the world. But Johns Hopkins is in Baltimore, Maryland. And when I brought this up to, to my wife, she's like, Baltimore, what? And uh, I, said, I said, look, you know, this is what I'm thinking about. And she's like, look, if, if that's going to be the best thing for you, then, you know, I support you. And that says a lot because one, my wife was an attorney before I was a physician. That's the mm-hmm. truth. And she's a superb attorney, a superb attorney. I once walked into court. I sat in the back and I watched her speak in front of a jury. I swear it was like watching uh, uh, Tom Cruise and a few good men. <laughs> she, this lady doesn't stutter. She speaks so eloquently and perfectly that literally I was about to stand up and say not guilty because that's how I was convinced of her. So I was like, wow, she's a impeccable attorney. And I knew all this. So it wasn't with the with ease that I was suggesting for us to leave. But I, I knew that in the long run, this would be a good decision. So I applied and, and I, I was very fortunate. I interviewed at Harvard. I interviewed at Johns Hopkins and, and many great institutions. But I knew that if I could get into Hopkins, this would be the, the best thing. Because in the as I remember at Cedars for the residency program, no one had ever been to the oncology program at Johns Hopkins in the history of the residency. So when I found that I got in, I told my wife she was ecstatic, but she also <laughs> knew that this would be a big challenge. And I was used to moving around. She wasn't. She's always been here with her friends and family. But um, I think a testament to her commitment to me and to, to our family is that she said, let's do it. So we got up, we packed up our stuff. My dad um, and my brother sat in a U-Haul and they transported all of our stuff across country while I flew with my wife and my oldest daughter at that time. We, we didn't have our second. So we, we get to Baltimore, Maryland, and um, my wife... Uh, gets to Baltimore and she goes, what is this place? Like, I can't even imagine it. It was hard, um, but we, we got through and we actually, interestingly enough, I think when I was in LA earlier, there were so many distractions, we didn't have a lot of time to spend with each other. Mm-hmm. But when you're alone far away and you just have your daughter and your wife in some shape or form, you're, you kind of get closer. So that was, I think the silver lining in all of this. And, um, when, uh, when after the first year passed, we kind of found our groove. We moved to a, a different part outside of Baltimore, uh, to Columbia, Maryland. And my fellowship went really, really well. Um, and, you know, in hindsight, it was the, the right decision. I, I learned an immense amount. I became a much better doctor. I became an excellent researcher. And then because of all the great work that was done, I ended up becoming chief for the uh, oncology fellowship there, which is a, a huge, huge honor. That doesn't happen at your age, from what I know. Uh, right? No, it, it doesn't, and it doesn't. It actually doesn't happen with people that come from outside of Hopkins. Typically, are, are people that are are kind of um, uh, homegrown, as they say. They, they did medical school or residency at, at Johns Hopkins. So, but I, I was very invested in that program personally, and um, 
uh, we did great work together. And then when COVID happened, I, I spent a lot of time there working as I was a chief that year. So I spent a lot of time working in the ICU with some of the sickest patients and my family wasn't even around at that point. But the long story short is that um, my wife was very, very, very supportive of it. And I think the, her support was probably what ended up influencing me in that ultimate decision is whether I stay in Baltimore at Johns Hopkins or I come back quote unquote home to Cedars mm -hmm. because I was like this lady she really uh she really invested in me maybe I got to pay her back in some way so I think subconsciously so mm -hmm. I had a very hard decision at the end about where I'm going to do my academic career and develop my career as a cancer researcher and physician and you know the I, I kind of made that decision with her in mind and I know that um is it John Hopkins yeah. who tried to uh, wine and dine and convince your wife because they knew that, you, that she was a determining factor? Oh, oh yeah. They tried oh, yeah. to uh, keep you there. Oh, yeah. I mean, they, uh, uh, Johns Hopkins, um, they realized that I, they, you know, that I would likely want to stay there and, um, and that it was a, a, a great place for me to grow my career. But they also realized that my wife uh, really wants to go back home to Los Angeles. So since they saw her as the hurdle, it's funny. One time we had a, a, a conference that I was going to speak at in Hawaii. And they were very clear that, hey, listen, you have to bring your wife. I was like, why? No, no, just please you bring your wife. It'll, it'll be good. I was like, okay, sure. So and these were people who are like professors, their department heads that were all going to be at this conference. And literally, so we, you know, I, I take my family and um, we go to the conference. I do, you know, what I have to do in terms of speaking and so on. And, you know, we enjoy the conference and... Uh, they say, oh, we're going to do a dinner. And I actually thought, I was like, wow, this is really nice. They're doing a dinner for me. <laughs> About 20 minutes into the dinner, I realized this is actually has nothing to do with me. Because they're focused solely on Anna and what she's going to do and what her decision is going to be and how they can convince her that it's in her best interest that we stay as a family in Baltimore. I was like, hey, guys, what about me? <laughs> Honestly, nobody cared. Nobody really cared. These guys were focused on... And I'm telling you, like this, there were like the chair of uh, surgery department. Uh, there was a professor and head of our entire GI cancer department. Like these are like some really big people, without naming any names, that were really sitting at dinner and going out of their way to convince her that the best thing would be to stay. And it wasn't only that dinner. Later on, we returned to Baltimore. There are many outings, dinners, occasions where they tried and they ultimately realized that now this lady exactly. can't be convinced. Yeah. They didn't understand that she's an impeccable attorney, and that's probably why they had no chance. So, you know, at the end, uh, I, I made the decision that it's in the best interest of my family, my wife, for us to return to Los Angeles. Um, and, and I returned to what's my home institution where I, I, you know, I did my residency. And in hindsight, it was actually a very appropriate decision because we've done great work at Cedars and, and Hopkins is still home to me. I still hold academic appointment there. So I, I, I'm a professor there and I'm a professor here at Cedars, but um, this was probably the best decision for everyone to, for me to be here. And the great thing is with what you know, you can really do it anywhere, right? Exactly. So exactly. it's not like you're being held back from what no. you, your, um, no, what you could have done. So at Cedars, when they won you over, yeah, <laughs> they gave you the Ossipov lab. Yeah. Right? Yeah, they did. They did. They did a... You know, Cedars was... Is how very, does that feel? It's kind of crazy. I don't know how to put it. Because when I'm, I'm a very junior investigator, but I've been very fortunate and very successful. Through I've had unbelievably great mentors. Um, and things have worked out well for me. And then when I, when I had a great mentor and I was able to carve out a, a nice space for my own research lab there, it's, it's really coming full, full circle for me because... Before I went in, into medicine, I was an engineer. I worked here in Los Angeles at this place that used to be Baxter Bioscience. And I always joke, it used to just be a bunch of nerds <laughs> sitting in a room in front of computers trying to solve problems. And it was cool. I mean, we were making medications for people that have blood disorders. Um, and I remember back then, I was like, I love the research and the things we're doing, but there's no patient interaction. And I, that for me is the core of what I do. And then years later, I get to do research at a, the highest possible level. 
through the lab, but then simultaneously I have a clinic where the lab and the clinic meet together to take care of patients as a whole, where we take cutting-edge research and we apply it to patients, and we take information for patients and we apply it to cutting-edge research. I mean, that is, you know, it's, a, it's like a dream for me mm-hmm. um, because I get to do what I love to do, um, and it's making a big impact. And when you're at the forefront of research, the part that actually really, really motivates me is that I know that no matter what happens, whether I personally succeed or fail, there is a, a success that is left because the, the information, all the, you know, I have students in my lab. I have UCLA students. I have students from other institutions, uh, pre-medical students, medical students, where what they're learning, even though, again, I may not be successful, their knowledge and what I teach them, they're going to carry forward. And maybe one of these bright young uh, girls um, or, or men are going to be able to one day solve the problems that maybe we couldn't do. Mm-hmm. So that, it, it very, really carries a lot of weight for me. Um, it's a huge privilege to have your own little lab and to do work. and to, You're to, to, making your mark in history. I hope so. I hope so. You know, I hope that we can do work and, and, and move, move things forward over time. What is your, okay, 10 years from now, what is your goal? You've, you've solved this issue, God willing. Um, will you be continuing to do your research in this field, another field? Will you continue to see patients, continue to do, uh, do research? I know because I, I, we've talked about what an emotional burden this is on you and your life, you know, but I also know that you're heavily invest, equally invested in um, solving a very big problem in this world. So, yeah, I mean... I don't, uh, you, you bring up a good point. I don't think, first of all, I don't think I'll ever stop seeing patients. I think if I'm even 70 some odd years old, mm-hmm. if I can see one or two more patients, I'll still do it because at the end of the day, there is something you, you well, I think you'll only understand if you're ever in that room and you see the interaction between a, a patient and the physician that for me, it's, it's, it's priceless. So that will never change. I don't know if I'll see it in the same volume. I will continue to do research. And I think the part that I've, I foresee where my career would transition is that everything I've learned, everything I've done, I want to pass it on to brighter and younger people. Mm-hmm. Um, where maybe in 10 years, I'll oversee even bigger team, where more students, more physicians actually, where young, young faculty or academic faculty that are doing cancer research that are kind of me now, that I could teach them, I can show them, guide them, um, be in a position where I can oversee a a big division of people like that um, because then you know instead of me only focused on one thing I can apply it to not just pancreas cancer but lung mm-hmm. cancer and, and melanoma mm-hmm. breast cancer where other doctors who are bright who are physician scientists can can be, have guidance and mentoring that's probably where I think I'm gonna be in 10 years from now mm-hmm. I don't think anything will really change um, but I mean, that's, that's a very broad question for me because you're only 36 years old. Yeah. Normally, we'd be asking this question for what you've accomplished at 36. People, um, you know, 20 years above you are accomplishing, you know, and that's just the, that's the fact. It's not even a compliment from what I know. It takes a very long time for you to get your own lab yeah. and, uh, you know, your own clinic and all of these things. So you've accomplished so much. Um, do you ever think like, wow... I'm amazing. Or does it become a norm to... I mean, for me, like, building a cosmetics brand, building a skincare brand, I know people always tell me, like, you should be so proud of yourself. But to me, it's like, it's like, it's what I strive on. I love to do it. And I don't look back and be like, wow, look at all the things I've done. But, you know, for you, making history, this is like your life, right? You're not even... You don't even talk about it boasting yourself, which you should be. Yeah, no, I, I, I don't and I can't actually because it's weird. I, I, I still see myself as just the, you know, I grew up in Glendale. Mm-hmm. I grew up here in LA and the friends I have are the same friends I had when I was in high school. And when I hang out with them and I'm still that same guy, I don't really see myself as like, oh, wow, you're this very accomplished physician, scientist, you do all this stuff. Yeah, it's great, but... For me, at my core, I'm, I'm just that same regular guy in some shape or form. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think 
it's become so ingrained in me what I do that I can't separate my identity from it in another way where it's just who I am. I don't, I don't see it as anything more or less, you know, you've been very successful in, in doing your makeup brand and in doing your cosmetic brand. But when you talk about it, you're like, Oh, well, this is just, uh, it's my regular day. Um, this is just who I am. Mm -hmm. But when we, from the outside look at you, we go, wow, she is, Lilith has built this amazing, like literally an empire, but you are so invested in that, that you can't separate it. I think in the same way, mm -hmm. I can't separate my accomplishments, mm -hmm. where I've come to, where I'm going to go from who I am. So I don't quite see it the way other people see it. I'm humbled, of course, mm -hmm. very humbled, but I think more than anything, it just motivates me. It motivates me that, look, if, if, if I've been lucky enough, healthy enough, I've had great opportunities that I've capitalized upon, this is great. I need, to, I need to pay it forward. I need to take everything and just pay it forward. Keep doing this. Keep sticking to it and find people like me that I could help because there were people five years ago, 10 years ago that opened up doors for me that changed my path in many ways. So that's kind of the way that I look at it. it, it it's to me extremely humbling. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't think that will ever change. And I actually would tell people that, as I always say, it doesn't matter whether you're in cosmetics and medicine and entertainment, never let it get to your head. Because at the end of the day, you are very good at what you do, but there are also people who are very good at what they do. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, if you're humble about it, you, you, know, you put your kind of head to the ground, you move forward, you strive, it's your work will speak for itself. You don't need to, you don't need to talk about yourself. It's just your work will speak for itself. That's right. Yeah. And I think the difference between me and you and interviewing you is that I, my career was kind of born on social media. But you, I don't even know if you have a social media account. So that's the difference where like, I want people to know such accomplished young people, Armenian too, because it's very hard as a minority to kind of accomplished amount that you have so i want social media which is pretty much the world to get to know someone as as accomplished as amazing as you and not you know not to minimize what i do but i'm not changing lives i'm not you know but you are physically changing lives um i guess i want to finish off this uh part with asking you what do you do on your spare time <laughs> I, you know, it's funny when you ask this, I've tried to think how much spare time do I really even have? There really isn't. Uh, but the things I do are not that exciting. Uh, <laughs> I, I actually like to spend time, as I mentioned, my friends and people who are not in medicine at all, who actually are in completely different walks of life. I don't talk about medicine. I kind of completely detach where I'll go and we'll hang out. We'll have drinks, jokes, you know, the usual, just kind of uh, completely detach from work. Mm -hmm. That's what I like to do. Uh, besides that, uh, I'm trying to think, what else do I really enjoy doing? Honestly, it's really hanging out with my friends more than anything. Yeah. And Just then detaching from your... I have, that's the only way. That's, uh, it, it's, it makes things balanced for me. So. Well, his, his wife, Anna, just walked in. Do you want to talk about how it feels... <laughs> She's laughing. Do you want to talk about how it feels to have a, such an amazing doctor as a husband and such an amazing husband because I know he's equally as amazing of a husband as he is a, a doctor oh that he is <laughs> maybe another interview <laughs> she, is, that, she, is, that, is that sarcasm we're getting she, she's being uh, too kind to me they asked me if I have children I say I don't know ask my wife um, that's the reality of it. well uh, that's one of the things I asked him you know would you have been able to do all of this without your wife and really to build a, a, a life outside of work and the type of work you have is very rare. It's hard because you, it's hard to balance a wife and kids and that like, but I guess detaching and going to Boston helped a lot with that. Maryland. Yeah. Maryland. So mm -hmm. she, uh, I'll be very honest. Uh, when it comes to being at home, um, when I come home, I really do rely on her a lot. I, a lot is an understatement. Um, she always likes to joke that when I leave Cedars, I uh, hang my brain at Cedars as well, <laughs> along with my white coat, and then I come home. And then instead of two children, she has three. And I'm not going to lie, uh, that's probably very true. Um, 
but hey, we all have our strengths and weaknesses. That's and, right. and mine doesn't happen to be in this household. So, <laughs> so we'll, we'll leave it at that. And maybe one day she can give you some insight into. He can only be a hero in so many different aspects yeah, of his yeah, life, Anna. Yeah. I'm very focused on what I do. And I'm very lucky that I have her to fill in all the holes uh, outside of the hospital. And she's making a, a gaping hole with her hands now. So. <laughs> Okay, we're going to interview Anna some other time about what an amazing husband Arson is. Um, is there anything that you want to leave off this interview with? Um, words of advice, whether it could be health, someone listening. I mean, I would say maybe words of wisdom from Arson. Yeah, two, I'll say. So I'll have two things to say. One that's more general advice and the other one that has to do with... Uh, with health and why that's so important. Um, to the first thing uh, in terms of health, I think when you get caught up with your everyday life, and we all do, um, we, we will focus on our work, we focus on our families, we focus on trying to you know, make the best of the lives we have. The one thing that we should really never ever take for granted is really our health. Uh, it's actually very unfortunate that over the last few years, I've seen a lot of patients my age come in and have some really difficult diagnoses, some really bad cancers. And I, I think that if you can focus on your mental well-being, your physical well-being, it'll pay dividends um, down the line when you're in your 40s, 50s, and 60s. And I can't stress that further. I think if I, if I can impart some small part of wisdom, that would be that. I think to the second thing, which is my general advice, and this is what I admire about you, Lulit, is that you know you 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 didn't come from a very as to, as to my understanding, because I've got to know you over the years, from a, a family where your family was millionaires, or that they gave you, you know, they left you with some kind of big uh, check. Um, you know, you you kind of made your name yourself. I remember when when I had met Anna you were doing makeup uh, out of a home and that you started, you know, you, you, you opened up a, a little studio with your dad's help. I remember these days vividly. And then now you, to my, at least from an from a external perspective, that you've built this empire. And that shows one thing. And I, it shows that you really have a perseverance, that you stick to what you believe in. And no matter what happens, you do not stray from your path. And that's been my kind of recipe for success, that no matter what has happened, all the trials and tribulations, all the difficulty, moving away, uh, trying to convince your wife that it's okay to leave Los Angeles, to you know the countless sleepless nights from medical school, um, all the way through fellowship, being in some of the hardest situations, mentally, physically, that in the long run, as long as you stay on your path, you're devoted, you're committed, um, that that really is what's going to be the recipe for success. Now, it doesn't matter whether you're a doctor, you're an entrepreneur, you have a makeup line, that recipe applies. You can pick any field, any goal. If you take that recipe and you apply it, you don't give up, you stick to it, I can more or less guarantee success. And I think the part where people are not successful is when they give up. Mm -hmm. And if you don't and you stay on that path, Whatever your goal is, it's going to happen. I can attest to that, and I attest it when I see what you've done. So that's why I admire people regardless of the field they're in. It's really about where they started and how they got to that point. I think it's that journey, that path. Mm -hmm. Instead of someone you know, handing you a multi-million dollar business, you built it from the scratch up. And instead of someone just saying, hey, now you're this physician, you go ahead and start practicing, that it took years of absolute dedication and to go through all these paths and doors to get to this point. Because at the end of the day, no one can never take what you've done away from you. And that is priceless. So that'll be my only last piece of advice to the people that are listening to your podcast. That was beautiful. Thank you, Arsen, for your time. This was so um, educational, informative. It was so great to get to know you. And, uh, you know, personally, obviously I know you personally, but, you know, have my guests get to know you personally because sometimes we'll just see, you know, 
a doctor has accomplished this and this and this, and you know, Anna will post things, and it's like you see, you're like, oh, cool, but you, we don't see the hard parts, like you said, the years of the the time and effort you've put into it, and when your research gets published, that publishing has years of history to it. So. That's right. Uh, we are all very, very proud of you, and we are wishing you much success on this uh, path of yours. And, you know, how do people get a hold of you or your team or, you know, should they need to and uh, want to have access uh, to you guys at C- just contact Cedars directly yeah. or you have a team, correct? No, there's a team. And actually, if you go on to the, if you give me just Google um, Cedars Sinai Pancreatic Cancer um, or even you Google my name, you, you'll come up um, with an email and a phone number to our clinic and, um, and also our, our, our research arm for GI cancers. So that's probably the best way of doing it. So if you Google Cedar sinai pancreas cancer, and I'll, and I'll give you the rest of the information mm-hmm. about our clinic and all the things that we're doing. And, you know, over the next year or so, um, we're going to have a, a lot of events here in Los Angeles as well as there'll be a, a very unique documentary coming out in about a year or so about uh, pancreas cancer um, uh, that has to do with one of my patients and uh, all the research that's being done internationally uh, for this very devastating disease. And I know you guys take donations as well. Do you, or we, was that a n- No, we purple? do. No, no, we, we do. We, we do take donations every year. And actually, it's coming up um, in November because uh, November is Pancreas Cancer Month, um, through both through our lab and as well as through PanCan, which is the largest national organization for pancreatic cancer, we raise funds um, for pancreas cancer research, mm-hmm. um, which is um, very, very, very important. So I'll share all that information, and then I know that you've been very supportive of all of our endeavors. And when that uh, month comes along, yeah, let um, me know. I will definitely let you know. You have a lot of influence, so <laughs> I don't have social media, but that's why I can on you. I don't. I can't imagine you having time for social media and the nonsense we watch a lot of times. But thank you so much for your time. This is your time Sunday at Sunday time that I'm taking away from you and your family, the little time that you do have with them. So I appreciate you. We appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you. Hopefully, we'll talk to you in a few years when you have cured pancreatic oh, cancer. Oh, there you go. I hope so. <laughs>